If you would, let me ask you to go ahead and open up to the book of Exodus and chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Europeans, their very lives were turned upside down. When we talk about the Reformation, we often talk about how it changed people's views concerning salvation. Uh, Through Scripture, they came to see that a right relationship with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that was huge. The recovery of the gospel was huge. It's the reason many of us in this room are here this morning as saved people. The gospel was recovered for our sake, and we ought to praise God for that. But the Reformation also included other discoveries in Scripture that had far-reaching impact. Uh, Family life changed for those who became Protestants. There was a renewed emphasis on the importance of the family and the importance of family roles and family relationships. Marriage was once again held in honor and esteemed. Work ethic began to change. Uh, You've heard of the Protestant work ethic. People began to understand that no calling is small when you are working heartily as unto the Lord. Worship also changed. Uh, Protestants could no longer bide the superstitious rituals of the Catholic churches in which they had grown up. They wanted preaching and they wanted teaching. They didn't want any more hocus pocus. And as the Bible worked its way into the bloodstream of these European cultures, one of the results was that people became convicted about the widespread use of images in their churches. The result is what the Dutch call the Beeldenstorm, what the Germans call the Bilderstorm, and what we know in English as the Iconoclastic Fury. Put simply, people started attacking churches carrying out all of the images of the saints, the icons and the statues, the supposed images of Jesus, and they would put them in a big fire and burn them. Sometimes they had been encouraged to do this by their Reformation pastors. Sometimes they did this against the warnings of their Reformation pastors. There's an image of a woodcut that was printed in Fox's Book of Martyrs, showing Protestants raiding and burning images from a Catholic church while the Catholics were trying to save whatever they could and load them, including themselves, onto a ship to get away. Uh, Martin Luther was especially angry when his own congregation in February of 1522, against his explicit Uh, commands, they went and smashed to pieces many of the religious images in Wittenberg. What had gotten into these people? What caused them to suddenly have such a, a hatred for having these religious images in their churches? Well, among other things, it was a recovery of the second commandment. Look with me at the second commandment. It's Exodus 20, beginning in verse 4. 
Let's see what this commandment says for ourselves. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 4, says the very word of God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now at the very outset, I need to say that this really is the second commandment. Because interestingly, there are two major groups who number their commandments differently than we number ours. And those two groups are the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans. Isn't that interesting? It's the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans who number their Ten Commandments different than everybody else. They consider those verses we just read to be a continuation of the first commandment. And to make their list of Ten Commandments equal ten, they take our Tenth Commandment and they split it into two. And so for them, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife is the ninth commandment, and you shall not covet your neighbor's things is the tenth commandment. Now, the problem with that is that those two commandments, you shall not covet this, you shall not covet that, there's still really one commandment. You shall not covet. Meanwhile, what they treat as one commandment, our first two, are definitely distinct commandments. Because you see, the first commandment teaches us about the object of our worship. You shall have no other gods before me. But the second commandment teaches us about the manner of our worship. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. The first commandment is about who we worship. The second commandment is about how we worship. The first commandment says, don't worship a false god. The second commandment says, don't worship the true God falsely. So what is the issue of the second commandment? It is worship. What is God setting apart for honor in this second commandment? It is worship. Mount Hermon, the worship of God is the highest activity that we can engage in, period. It is the highest activity that you or I will ever engage in. There is nothing we can do that is more sacred, that is more wonderful, that is more profound, that is more life-giving than to worship God. Uh, it is here in worship that infinite God meets with finite us. That the transcendent one meets with little us. He, he is other than us. He is beyond us. And yet he comes and communes with us as we worship him. It's in worship that God receives the glory that he is due. And it is in worship that he satisfies and delights his people. In worship, we honor God for who He is. We remember who we are, and then we overflow in awe of His mercy and His love towards us. 
It is no accident that the deepest words of our vocabulary, words like majesty and glory and wonder, these are words that come from the experience of worship. Worship humbles us. Worship instructs us. And worship transforms us. Here is something that God has set aside for us to take seriously, to treat carefully, and to embrace joyfully. It is His worship. But just as true, just as true worship is life-giving, true worship is transformative, so also false worship can have terrible effects on our lives and on our souls. And therefore, God gave the second commandment to Israel to teach them about appropriate worship. And there are two main principles being taught in the second commandment. First, surface level, right there, very obvious, images are not to be used in worship. Images are not to be used in the worship of the true God. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now we need to be clear, this commandment does not mean that God's people cannot make images or have likenesses of anything for any reason. This is not a commandment against art. The issue of this commandment is worship. The issue is making an image to which you will bow down. An image which you will serve. And this practice was rampant throughout the ancient world. And it still continues in many places today. But since it is largely foreign to us as Americans, I want you to listen as Douglas Stewart explains how idolatry worked. Okay? He says, when a statue of a given God was carved and certain ritual incantations were spoken over that statue to cause the essence of that God to enter it, that statue was then understood to become a functioning conduit for anything done in its presence from the worshiper to that God. In the same way that a modern person might speak to and look into a sound-equipped television camera, knowing that their words and their actions were being transmitted accurately to other locations, ancient people believed that the offerings they brought before an idol of a god, the prayers they said in that idol's presence, were fully and unfailingly perceived by the god whom that idol represented. In other words, when a person would bow down to worship an idol, they did not believe that the idol itself was a god, but they believed that that idol contained something of the essence of the god it represented within it, and that whatever they did in the presence of that idol was received by the god whom that idol represented. And so remember in Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar had a huge image of gold erected in the plain of Dura. And he commanded everyone in the kingdom to bow down to that, to that statue whenever the instrument sounded. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace because they refused to worship the image. 
That image represented King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, ancient kings were often considered to be divine, were considered gods. By placing his image there in the plains of Dura, Nebuchadnezzar was saying, I am the sovereign one here. And you show your adoration to me and you show your allegiance to me by bowing before my image. Every god of the ancient world had its images. There were lots of gods. Family gods, tribal gods, national gods. And there were lots of images. (laughs) Uh, Men made their living fashioning images and selling them as idols. Priests often made their living by charging people to speak incantations over idols so that the essence of a god would go into that image. There were entire cities whose economies were built on the industry of idolatry. And yet, when the God of Israel gave his law to his people, he said, you will not worship me that way. That might be how every other nation worships all their other gods. Israel, you are going to be radically different from every other nation. Your God is the true God. And there is no image that can represent me. Any attempt to capture my character or my attributes in an image is only going to demean me. It's only going to misrepresent me. Mount Hermon, what animal are you going to choose to truly character, to, to, to capture the essence of God? What part of the natural world could you sculpt as an accurate representation For the creator of all things. Someone has said an idol makes the infinite God finite. Makes the invisible God visible. Makes the living God dead. Makes the spiritual God material. In short, an idol makes God the exact opposite of what he actually is. So throughout the books of Moses, not only here, but especially in Deuteronomy, uh, we find constant prohibitions against Israel making images of her God. In fact, perhaps the only other person in the Old Testament to speak as much against using images in the worship of God as Moses is the prophet Isaiah. And what's interesting about both of those men is that they had both seen glimpses of God himself. Uh, Moses received a glimpse of God's glory on the mountain. Isaiah saw God in his temple high and lifted up. These two men came as close as any men in the history of the world to actually seeing God. And so it's significant that these two men who received these awesome revelations of God and His glory, were the most passionate to say, don't even try to use images to picture God. Don't try. You can't do it. These men knew better than most that you can only go astray in your thinking about God when you try and use visual representations. You simply cannot capture God faithfully using anything that we know of in creation. And so as the commandment says, we're not to use anything in the heaven above, we're not to use anything in the earth below, and we're not to use anything in the waters below the earth. That means use nothing. (laughs) Don't use 
anything. Calvin says, whatever forms of God man devises are diametrically opposed to his nature. Therefore, as soon as idols appear, true religion is corrupted and adulterated. So how is Israel to be different? This is really, really important, church. Israel's God was to be heard and known through His Word. For God's people, the ears would be more important than the eyes. It would be through the ears that they would know God. That they would hear the truth of who God is. That they would begin to see God accurately with the eyes of their hearts. Israel's worship was to be word-based, not image-based. Think about the Psalms. The book of worship contained in the middle of your Bible. You ever notice that it's not a picture book? Psalms isn't a picture book. It's a book based on words. It's word-centered. We're told to listen. We're told to hear. We're told to meditate. We're told to tell, to proclaim, to declare, to sing, to shout. The whole book of Psalms with all of its worship language is about word. Christianity is a word religion. We are to be the one people that know that one verse of God's word is worth more than a thousand pictures. It's a word religion. The emphasis of word over visual images caused the other nations to mock Israel. And the Israelites, most of them with hardened hearts, they really struggled with this. They struggled with the temptation to worship their God the way the other nations worship their gods. Sadly, even in our own day, we see many Christians and many churches returning to paganism and bringing more and more images and visual elements into the worship of God. And yet when we look back through the pages of church history, we find something very interesting. When the church of Christ has been healthiest, when the church of Christ has been strongest, she has rejected images and given her attention to the word of God. This was the cry of the Reformation. More Bible. Give us more Bible. Away with the images. On the other hand, during those times when the church of Christ has been weakest and most unhealthy, she has been marked by a neglect of God's word and a craving for a return to superstition, false teaching, and particularly an embrace of images. Well, the second and the more foundational principle of the second commandment is this one. We are to worship God as He has commanded. We are to worship God as He has commanded this commandment reminds us that God determines how he is to be worshipped and not us. So listen to the shorter catechism, question 50. This was used for many hundreds of years, especially in the colonies of America, to teach children the Bible. And this question was said to the children, what is required in the second commandment? And here's the answer the children were to give. The second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in His Word. 
Friends, underneath the command not to worship God through images is this implication that God determines what is acceptable and what is unacceptable in the way He is worshipped. God has not called us to use our own imaginations here. God knows better than we do what brings Him true honor, and God knows better than we do what our souls need as we worship God. And so God has instructed us in how we are to worship Him. We ought to heed what God has said about His worship, and we ought not to try and get inventive. People get killed in the Bible for trying to be inventive in the way they worship God. So some weeks ago, the Church of England had a special worship service in which they added a new element to their worship. This is going to sound ridiculous. I did not make this up. It is absolutely true. They included in their worship service that day the elevation of the blessed asparagus. Basically, the town in which this church was located was kicking off a local asparagus festival. And so, they had a priest in the worship service march down the center aisle in his priestly garb, holding high several spears of asparagus. The asparagus was brought down to the altar, and in a sacred ceremony, the asparagus was blessed by the priest. That's not the worst of it. Alongside the priest who marched down the aisle was a man dressed as Gus the Asparagus, who participated in the worship service in a full asparagus costume. All of this happened in a Christian cathedral, supposedly devoted to the worship of God, and in a service that was a worship service devoted to God's honor. Friends, we are not as far removed from the practices of the pagan peoples as you might think we are. We must not get inventive in our worship. We must listen to God. Why should we listen to God to teach us how to worship Him? I'm going to give you five biblical reasons. We rehearse these from time to time because they're important and they need to be in the DNA of our church. Five reasons we look to God to learn how to worship Him. Number one, the nature of God. The nature of God. He is transcendent. He is infinite. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts, God says, Isaiah 55, 9. There is a great difference between us and God. And there is much about God that has not been revealed to us. There are secret things that belong to the Lord. And we must not presume that we have ever got God completely figured out. We must never think that we can decide for ourselves what God will like and what God will not like, what will be pleasing to Him and what will not be pleasing to Him. On our own, we are at a loss to know good from evil. Genuine worship from false worship. God must tell us these things. God must reveal to us what is good and what is not. We can no more figure out the heart and mind of God as an ant can figure out what's going on in your heart and in your mind. And so God 
has humbled himself to speak to us on our level and to teach us in his holy word how to worship him. So you see, the nature of God implies we should look to him to know what acceptable worship is. And of course, along these same lines, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the goodness of God, all teach us that he is infinitely more qualified to speak on this matter than we are. If you have a rabbit and a six-year-old and a world-renowned neurologist, and you have a serious question about the brain, who are you going to ask? The rabbit? The six-year-old? When it comes to matters of worship and truth and true religion, we should go to God. He has spoken to us. Well, then second, there is the nature of man. The nature of man. See, the nature of God tells us that He is the one to whom we should look for answers concerning worship. But the nature of man tells us the exact same thing. Because if we know ourselves, really, then we know it's dangerous to look to us to determine what is or isn't true worship. For though we've been born again, though we have a new heart, though we have a desire to do what's right, sin is still within us. The the pesky remnants of selfishness and self-centeredness are in us, and they affect our thinking. They affect what we like and don't like. If we look to ourselves to determine what worship should be like, we may ultimately come out with something that we really like but that is not pleasing to God. Our sinful hearts and our sinful minds may take us down wrong paths and our worship may end up being more about us than it is about God. Friends, please understand, if we have a worship service that people love, so that hundreds upon hundreds of people flock to our church and they enjoy the worship service, but God isn't pleased. We have failed in how we worship. So let me ask you a question. It's really the question that God is putting before Israel in this second commandment. Are you willing to submit to God when it comes to this issue of worship? Are you willing to to come to grips with the reality that worship should be more about pleasing Him than pleasing us? This is so un-American. It's so counter-cultural. It's, for many people, it's, what do I prefer? I'm going to go from church to church to church to find a worship service that, that I prefer. That should not be the question. The question should be, is this a church that worships the way God commands? That worships the way that pleases Him? And then, of course, there's our, our tendency towards idolatry, our tendency to make images of our God, to, to worship Him in ways that we know we shouldn't. Calvin said the human heart is an idol-making factory, and so we are in dangerous territory when we start looking to ourselves to decide what worship should look like. Well, then third, there's the nature of faith. The nature of faith. All of our lives as Christians are to be lived in faith. We're to wake up in the morning with faith that God's mercies are going to sustain us through the day. We're to go about our work with faith that God will bless our efforts and that He is at work around us and in us, making us holy. 
Every moment of a Christian's life should be lived in faith and every activity of a Christian's life should be done in faith. And worship is certainly included. If our worship is not done in faith, it's sinful. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6 Worship without faith cannot please God. It's impossible. Or Romans 14.23 Whatever is not from faith is sin. So what does that mean then to worship in faith? Well, it means to worship in such a way that you're trusting God. Worshiping faith is worshiping in a way that's rooted in your trust, your dependence upon God. Yet if we're worshiping how we want, that's trusting us. That's trusting that our way is good enough, that our way will honor God, that our way will sanctify God's people. But that's foolishness. Our faith is to be in God. And so we're to trust Him, and therefore we turn to Him. We sit at the Master's feet And we say, teach us. Help us to know. What does real worship look like? How are we to honor you? Fourth, there's the nature of Christ's church. Uh, You see, as part of Christ's church, we have no right to worship any way other than Christ has commanded. Uh, It's Christ's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not our church. Ultimately, it's Christ's church, bought with his own blood, He is the head of the church. Uh, We don't give the orders around here. Christ is the good shepherd, and he he instructs us through his word. We have a faithful teacher, a noble king, a a mighty captain who reveals to us our duties. And he's worthy of our trust as head of the church. And so Jesus Christ alone has the authority to declare how his church is to live and how his church is to worship. Anytime a pastor starts calling a congregation or leading a congregation to worship in a way that is contrary to the Bible or just not commanded in the Bible, that pastor is taking on an authority that has not been given to him. He's he's encroaching on Christ's authority as head of the church. Well, then finally, there's the nature of true love. The nature of true love. Do we love God? Do we love Him? Love for God means that we want to do what He delights in, what pleases Him. Imagine you want to give a gift to express your love to them. What what do you look for? When you're looking for a gift for that person that you love, when when you want to give them that gift, do you look for something that you really like? Or do you look for what you know that person likes? The more time, the more thought, the more carefulness you put into making that gift just right, just what they would desire, the more it expresses your love for that person. And that's how it is with God. You see, even more than the acts of worship themselves, God is pleased with our carefulness to obey Him thoroughly. It really is the thought that counts when it comes to the worship of God. Samuel told Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Is the sacrifice important? Yes. But it's the fact that you're being obedient that shows God that you love Him. 
It's the fact that you're being obedient that shows that you honor him and esteem him. Do do our songs matter to God? Yes. Do our prayers matter to God? Yes. Does the public reading of scripture matter to God? Yes. Does Lord's Supper and baptism matter? Yes. But even more than the elements of worship themselves, it is the fact that we gather in faith to do what God has called us to do that shows that we trust him. Because frankly, Mount Hermon, what we do on Sunday morning seems really weird to a lot of people in our world today. Why? You gather together and sing some old songs and read from an old book and pray together. And when you have the Lord's Supper, you eat like just enough to get hungry and stop. Right? Why do y'all do this stuff? Answer, because God told us to. And we love Him. And we trust Him. And so we show, we, we worship God in our obedience. The obedience is even more important than the sacrifice. Now, as I close this morning, we're going to hit hard on the actual, more into the text of the second commandment tonight. But I do want us to, to see that every one of us has broken the second commandment. You might not have ever bowed down to a bronze statue. But all of us have entertained thoughts of God in our minds that were untrue. All of us in our sinful natures have created images of God in our minds that were not right. All of us at times have wanted God to be different than He is. Do you have to admit that? There have been times when you wish God was different. There have been times when we wanted God to smile at our sins rather than judge them. There have been times when we wanted God to be more like us. Loving what we love instead of calling us to love what He loves. Anytime we choose to go against God's will, we show by by that act of sin that we either believe Him to be unwise or unrighteous or too weak to call us to account. In fact, at the bottom of every sin is an image of God that you've created that is different from who He truly is. Because if you acknowledge God as He truly was, you wouldn't sin. You have to somehow convince yourself, He's going to let me get by with this, or He's wrong on this. You've got to have a false image of God in your mind to justify the sin you commit. The second commandment's at the bottom of all other sins. You and I are guilty of the second commandment. But that is why Jesus came. He came to save idolaters like us. Uh, Praise God, when we believe on Jesus Christ, our sins are washed away. Jesus makes us right with God. He removes the sin that separates us from God. And then, by grace, Jesus begins to root all idolatry out of our lives. And so, dear friends, let us, every one of us, turn afresh to Jesus Christ. Let us entrust ourselves to Him. Let us live in the gracious salvation that He gives. And then in the joy of having been saved by Jesus, let us offer up acceptable, earnest, happy worship to God. Amen? Amen. More tonight. Let's pray.